Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I want to talk about another deleted scene that Peter Jackson left out of his movie trilogy, and that's the Scouring of the Shire. This is one where he kind of gives a nod to it when he uh, shows the Mirror of Galadriel scene, but, and huge spoiler warning for anybody who hasn't read the book, obviously, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, when the hobbits return to the Shire, they don't just return to the Shire as they knew it. They return to a Shire that has been radically altered and not for the better. So let's talk about exactly what happens and some of the interesting themes that we can draw out of that. The lead-up to the hobbits returning to the Shire begins with their journey home. They leave Gondor after witnessing the marriage of Aragorn and Arwen. They pass by Isengard, where the Ents are still basically kind of cleaning up and trying to turn it into a wooded area again. And they come there, and Gandalf basically asks Treebeard, Where's Saruman? Because unlike in the movie, Saruman didn't die when Gandalf and the others came. So he was still alive at this point. Treebeard basically says, I let him go. I didn't have the heart to keep him locked up forever. Gandalf was kind of annoyed, but he also kind of was not surprised. So they continue on their journey. Gandalf and company, including the hobbits, eventually actually overtake Saruman uh, with Wormtongue, traveling as beggars in the wilderness, basically. And Saruman is just as spiteful as you can imagine. Wormtongue not happy to be with Saruman, but not really willing to do much of any, anything else either. So they leave them because they really won't accept any help. And they end up, of course, coming eventually to Rivendell. And they spend a lot of time there. Frodo's trying to catch up Bilbo with their adventure so Bilbo can add it to his book and all that, which Bilbo at this point is old and not really into writing, so Frodo has to do a lot of the writing himself. After a long time spent in Rivendell, they're really ready to go home. They start on their homeward journey with just the four hobbits and Gandalf left in the group, and on their way back, they stop at the, the Prancing Pony Inn in Bree, speak to Butterbur, catch him up on everything. Slow and dim-witted as he is, he finds it all pretty amazing. And after they leave, Gandalf separates finally near the old forest, basically telling them, I'm going to go talk to Tom Bombadil. You guys need to go straight to the Shire, though, and make sure you get there before dark, before the gates close. Mary basically says, wait a minute, there are no gates in the Shire. What are you talking about? And Gandalf says, you may find that there are now. And of course, this all makes you kind of wonder, where did he... Where did he get this information? We never really find out, but of course, he is a wizard. So, at any rate, he leaves them. The hobbits do eventually come to the borders of the Shire, and they do find a gate at the river. And that's what kind of gets their adventure started. So let's talk about that. When the hobbits arrive at the gate, it is after dark, and the gate is barred. And when they knock... They don't really get much of a pleasant response. The hobbits that are kind of manning the gate basically tell them to go away. And then even when they recognize who Mary is, they're like, well, it's against the rules to let you in. And the hobbits at this point are kind of just in awe. Like, what happened to the Shire? Why is there a gate? Why can't you just let us in? So 
what eventually they do is they climb over the gate, which apparently is not very tall. And of course, Mary and Pippin have gotten taller due to drinking the water that Treebeard shared with them in the in Fangorn Forest. So they get in, and the hobbits there are talking about, oh my gosh, you're gate breaking, you're in so much trouble. They tear down a notice with a bunch of rules, which is also against the rules. They break all kinds of rules based on what the hobbits that are there tell them, including eating too much, set it, lighting, you know, putting too much wood on the fire, and all sorts of other things. It's interesting because you can you kind of get the idea that maybe Tolkien was thinking about wartime rationing here, because some of the things that they're talking about, you know, using too much food, using too much wood, all this stuff, very reminiscent of a World War II rationing system, because during World War II, there was a lot of rationing, certainly in America, probably also in Britain. So you kind of wonder how much of that influenced this part of the story. At any rate, they stay there overnight after being warned many times how many rules they've broken and prepare to set out in the morning. So the next day, the hobbits set out for Hobbiton itself. And on the way, they run into some sheriffs who formerly had been mainly employed in terms of like making sure sheep didn't get too far astray and whatnot because the hobbits never really had much of a law and order problem. There weren't really any criminals to speak of. Now they're actually involved in enforcing all the absurd rules that they have already encountered. So the sheriffs arrest them, which is kind of humorous because Merry and Pippin are both armed carrying swords. Actually, all four of them are, but Merry and Pippin are, of course, the ones most experienced in warfare at this point. And really, it's more like the four hobbits have arrested the sheriffs, but they're just kind of playing along. They keep going. They actually end up encountering some men who they chase off, and of course, the the mystery keeps building, because why are there men in Hobbiton and the Shire, more generally? And the Hob some of the hobbits that they're with explain, you know, there's all these men that are kind of at the, the back of all of this, and they're enforcing the sharing of goods, by which they mean confiscation. Uh, and <laughs> there's, it, there's a lot of Orwellian doublespeak going on here, too, which is interesting in its own right. But... The uh, gist of it is they keep going. They find out a little more information as they go along, including the fact that Lotho Sackville Baggins, who is the son of Lobelia Sackville Baggins, at some point had bought up apparently almost all of the pipeweed uh, growing land in the Shire, which was interesting because and you even kind of get a little hint of this in the movies. I think it may only be in the extended version. But Merry and Pippin, of course, discover pipeweed in Isengard, and they're wondering, in the book, it's a little more obvious, you know, why is there pipeweed in Isengard? Uh, so they're starting to realize that maybe Lotho was behind that, to some extent, selling the, the pipeweed to Saruman, and that's probably why he was buying up all this land. He had some outside buyer that he was trying to make money off of. At any rate... They also find out at some point Lobelia Sackville Baggins, who at this point was old, uh, was arrested, which leads them to think that Lotho Sackville Baggins may not be in charge anymore, really, even though he had been kind of acting as if he were in charge. So he ends up 
well, he, I mean they, the, the four hobbits, also find out that the mayor, the former mayor of Hobbiton, Hobbiton, had also been arrested. So there's all sorts of things they're finding out along the way. And they keep going on their trip, and as they get closer, they just find out more and more bad things. So it just gets worse and worse and worse. As they approach Hobbiton, they run into Tant Sandyman, who is the miller. And in place of his old mill, there is now a much more industrialized version. And indeed, much of Hobbiton itself seems to have been industrialized. There's a lot of kind of cookie-cutter, really ugly houses that all look exactly the same and don't look very well constructed. And just generally, the whole thing seems more like it's more oriented toward machines than its former pastoral self. At any rate, Ted Sandyman, there's a little bit of back-and-forth conversation between them, and it seems that he's the only one who's somewhat happy with the turn of events. He seems to actually enjoy the fact that it's being somewhat industrialized, and that doesn't really go much of anywhere. They leave him behind. Once they get really into Hobbiton proper, Sam breaks off and goes to the house of the Cottons, because Rosie Cotton, of course, is his uh, the, the girl that he's interested in marrying, which you don't really get a whole lot of any of that prior to this part of the story, uh, but it becomes very obvious at this stage that he's in love with Rosie Cotton, and he goes and visits Rosie and her parents and her brothers, and they kind of fill them in a little bit more on what's going on, and he rounds up some of the, the male members of the family, the father and the brothers, and they go back with him to meet the other hobbits, basically saying, you know, we're going to have to come up with a plan. Farmer Cotton uh, tells him, basically, the hobbits will probably rise up if, if they get a fire lit under them. He's just been waiting for one to happen. So Mary ends up blowing the horn of Rohan that was given to him by Eowyn, and that summons a lot of hobbits out. Pippin goes to Tookland to go... Uh, get a bunch of the Tooks involved. Frodo and uh, Sam are just kind of there for the most part. Merry and Pippin do a lot more of the actual strategizing and whatnot. Frodo is the one who is the most averse to any kind of violence, but if he realizes at some level some may be needed. At any rate, they prepare for a, a much larger group of men to meet them because the group that they had scared off earlier was fairly small, not really prepared to face armed hobbits. And so they're getting ready for an attack by men. Eventually a large band of men do show up and what they had done in the meantime was they set up in a hedge or not really a hedge, but like a, an area with where the road was kind of walled on both sides. And then they blocked it off, trapped the men inside basically said, surrender, you're surrounded by hobbits, most of whom were carrying either bows or some other type of long-range weapon, as well as, you know, farm implements. And the men, thinking that it would be just an easy pushover, decided, no, we're going to actually try to break out. So the, there were some deaths on both sides. Some of the men do escape. Most of them do end up surrendering once they realize, you know, the hobbits really are actually fighting back. Uh, so they kind of let... They, the ones that they captured, Frodo basically says, let them go, but you have to leave the Shire like right now and never come back. So that's what happens to them. 
And then things just continue to get uglier. The hobbits finally come to Bag End itself, and they find it deserted. It's empty, the furniture is overturned, there's nothing really in it, and it doesn't smell very good either. Uh, while they're pondering the mystery of it, they eventually hear a voice which Frodo recognizes, and it's Saruman. Saruman, it turns out, has been running this operation the whole time. He is the boss of all the men who are there, and he's been working this angle for some time from Isengard, and then while he was, you know, busy in the wandering the wilderness, managed to pass up Frodo and the other hobbits while they were staying in Rivendell, finally made it to the Shire, and took up his role as leader there. And frankly, his main motivation seems to be to stick it to the hobbits, just because of spite. Uh, at any rate, at this point, he realizes he's lost again because all of his ruffians have been run off. He has no real way to combat anything. He has no power left because Gandalf destroyed his staff and basically told him the only real danger he has left is his voice. So, at, and to some extent, he tries to use that. He threatens the hobbits and basically says, if you kill me, then you're the whole land will wither and you'll never grow anything again. And Frodo says, that's not true. He can't do that, but we're not going to kill him. And basically his rationale is Saruman is, you know, he's a Maya. He's, he's a very high order being, and it's not for us hobbits to decide his fate. That's for somebody else to do, bad as the guy is. So basically Frodo says, you know, we're not going to kill you, but you do have to leave. Uh, and he allows, he, he basically tells Wormtongue he can stay, and Saruman says, you might not want him to stay. I think he might have eaten Lotho. He doesn't say it in so many words, but th that's what he implies, because at this point it, it's become clear that Lotho is dead, and nobody really knows what's happened to him, and that's, the answer we get is Saruman's implication that Wormtongue was, ate him out of hunger. So it's a pretty ugly end to that conversation, Frodo, nonetheless, is still willing to let him stay. Saruman, being the the cruel person that he is, basically tells him, nope, you have to come with me, and even is physically abusive towards him, which that's also a little bit in the movie in the extended cut as well, but and that is similar to how this plays out because what ends up happening is Saruman walks away, you know, starts to leave, Wormtongue, who's finally, finally had enough, you know, pulls a dagger, jumps on his back, stabs him, and then runs off. The hobbits, who are just kind of, and I'm not just the four hobbits, there's a lot of hob other hobbits with them, uh, they're so shocked that they're, they just, some of them automatically just pull their bows and shoot Wormtongue. So they both end up dead, and that's the end of both of them. What happens with Saruman they kind of see his spirit rising from his body, and it seems like it's trying to reach out towards the west, which of course is where he came from. He came from Valinor, but then a wind comes from the west and blows it away in a symbolic rejection, basically saying, <laughs> you don't get to come back now, dude. So that's what happens at the end of kind of the scouring of the Shire, but then there is a recovery phase, and that's where things start to look up a bit. Here I have to go back and correct something else that was done differently in Peter Jackson's movies, because in the movies, 
when Galadriel is giving gifts to the Fellowship in Lorien, she gives Sam specifically just rope. Whereas in the book, everybody kind of got some rope because it was just given as a, this is something useful you're probably going to need. Sam was giving something some, much more personal. It was a box, although they didn't open at the time, but Galadriel basically told him, even if you return to your home and find that, you know, all of it is laid waste, you'll still have a very beautiful garden. So they had kind of forgotten all about that until now, and Sam finally remembers, I have this, and I don't even know what's in it. So they open it up, and they find that there's some dust, or what looks like dust, grains of something, and one large nut or seed. And what they end up, they discuss it between the four of them. One of them suggests, you know, test some of the dust in a plot, see what happens. You know, one of them says, maybe just throw it in the wind, see where it goes. What he ends up doing is he basically takes a little bit of the dust and goes to all the places that were especially beautiful in the Shire, because there's not enough in the entire Shire, and puts some of the dust in with, you know, new trees and things that were planted, because most of the trees were, in fact, cut down. In fact, they cut down the party tree, which uh, is the tree that, even in the movie, you can kind of tell, Bilbo gives his speech at the birthday party underneath a tree. That's in the book. It's kind of a big deal. And... Uh, what he does, he takes the nut and plants it where the party tree used to be. So, And he spreads this dust all over the Shire. And what it apparently does is it makes everything grow faster and better. And it's like magic fertilizer, essentially. And the, the nut that he plants turns out to be a Malorn tree, which is the tree that Lothlorien is famous for. It has silver trunk and golden leaves, or, well depending on what season it is, depending on, it determines what the color of the leaves is, but it's, it's, it's a very beautiful tree, and that's the point. So, as a result, the Shire actually does recover quite well and fairly quickly, and even the Hobbit children born during the period are much more uh, healthy, much more attractive, beautiful, whatever you want to call it, and as a result, everything kind of ends up panning out fairly well for the Shire. It takes a lot of work, of course, to get it back to normal after all the nasty things that were done to it by Saruman, but it all gets restored to its former beauty, and that is in large part due to Caladriel's gift. So let's talk about just a few of the themes that we can kind of tease out of this entire chapter or two that gets left out of the movies. Of course, I've already mentioned the fact that the Shire was essentially industrialized in this entire process, and for Tolkien, that's a very negative thing, because of course, Tolkien loves his trees, he loves nature, that's why the Ents play such a large role, and so the destruction of so much nature is really a big deal in, in his mythology, and that's one of the themes that gets carried through very fairly obviously in the Scouring of the Shire episode. So that's one thing. And also just the idea of wartime destruction, generally. It's like you don't ever really get back what you lost in some ways. Another theme, which I also kind of mentioned earlier, is the fact that you've got this sharing going on in a kind of Orwellian, doublespeak kind of sense. And it's at least probably related to wartime rationing, but he may also, you have to wonder if he had a little bit of the idea of communism in the back of his mind, like some of the 
the more really bad aspects of communism that went on in Soviet Russia, where, you know, allegedly the point of it all is to make everybody equal, and yet everybody ends up just poorer except for some people at the top, which in this case would be Saruman and, you know, the, the ruffians that were working for him. Now, of course, he's not making an allegory to communism, but you can definitely see an analogy there. So those are a couple of obvious themes. One of the other ones that stands out a little bit if, if you've read a lot of different things and you really pay attention, when he talks to, when the hobbits talk to Ted Sandyman, it talks about, one of the hobbits mentions the fact that, you know, if he had kept his own mill and been his own master, he would have been better off. And that's kind of interesting because it hints that maybe Tolkien had a slightly different view of economics. Most of us tend to think of economics falling into one category or another. It's either capitalism or it's socialism. Tolkien, being a Catholic, might have had a third view, which I don't want to get into the details, but it's called distributism, and it was a fairly common view among Catholics of his day. So it's it's kind of the idea that everybody should be the owner of their own you know, not means of production, because that's more of a communist idea, but, you know, you should own your own business, own your own tools, that sort of thing. So one wonders if he's kind of saying that through that commentary. But there's a lot of different things in the scouring of the Shire that you could talk about in terms of thematic elements. And it's one of the more interesting episodes because it's almost an anti-climax except of course for the recovery phase and the other interesting thing about it too is that it in a lot of ways sets up for the very end where Frodo finally leaves because Frodo in the movie of course he says the Shire has been saved but not for me well in what sense is that true in the book it makes a little bit more sense because Frodo is actually saying you know, I came back and I found that all the stuff that I was trying to save the Shire from happened anyway. And even though it does recover, you know, there's a part of him that, you know, it's like he went through all this trouble and it still happened. He was trying to save the Shire and it just, he just couldn't totally save it. So anyway, that's kind of what I want to leave it at for now. So that's the scouring of the Shire. A very interesting episode that gets completely left out, although it is kind of hinted at in Peter Jackson's movies. So that's the scouring of the Shire. You can kind of see why Peter Jackson left it out of the movies because it does kind of create a sort of anticlimax. It, you know, after all the victory, then you come home and find a huge mess. It's, but it's partially Tolkien recognizing that, you know, even though you win, you never completely win anything. There's still, you know, the after effects of war that you have to deal with. And so I think it is important for the story in that sense. And so I think, you know, it's, if you don't get it in the movies, you should get it somehow or other. So if you're not willing to read the entire novel to get it, at least this, not this little video will help you understand a little bit of what's going on in the novel that you won't get in the movie. So Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please give it a like and share it around. If you want to learn more about Tolkien, the worlds he created, or even things not Middle Earth related, please subscribe to the channel, or you can follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore. Until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadie. No